Michael. Hey, Diane. It's uh, been quite a week with the election that everyone, I'm sure, has been... Uh, was, was waiting with bated breath to see how it worked out last week and, and obviously the suspense over the counting in the various states and so on. But I have to be honest, I'm really proud of myself right now because I went to sleep early on election night. I didn't succumb to the temptation of watching cable news. Uh, you know I have political junkie in my background, but I avoided all of that. And uh, I, you know, but I got to watch President-elect Biden's speech Saturday night, felt good about that and really identified with the central message and hoping that we can indeed lower the temperature across our country over the next four years. Easier said than done, but I'm hopeful. And I'm curious, how did you survive the past week? Well, Michael, it sounds like um, we had a very similar approach to the week. I sort of threw myself into work, swore off news, and figured someone would tell me when something actually was decided. (laughs) um, And two, was really happy about and inspired by a message of unity and collaboration and um you know that that's what i'm really looking forward to is is not waking up every morning wondering oh no what has the president done today i'm perfectly fine with boring drama-free approach to governing you no longer have to check twitter (laughs) exactly I'll only be following you now, Michael. <laughs> oh, good, good, good. Of course, but you know, obviously, this is timely, right? Because it's uh, it, it, it all of these changes dovetail exactly why we're having these conversations because the uh, considerable uncertainty continues to manifest itself across our country in a time of COVID and the racial reckoning that we've had and all of these stresses that families, parents, and educators are feeling. Indeed, Michael. And I think what we're trying to do here on Class Disrupted is offer a balanced and nuanced versus sort of headline-grabbing, sound-bitey um, way of thinking about what what's going on. And so let, let's, let's get to it. Yeah, let's do it. And in that vein, Diane, I read an article about a change in the end of year tests in California. So that's your neighborhood, no longer mine. Uh, And I would love to get your take on what's actually happening there and what the impact is likely to be. What what do you have on the plate? Great. Um, Well, I I have to go here, Michael. It it feels a bit early, but I've got to tell you, everybody is already speculating on who the next Secretary of Education will be. Um, And as it turns out that person might have some say over those California tests. So so let's actually get started with those tests and then jump into the talk of the town. Perfect. As usual, two topics that are kind of connected to each other, it turns out. So uh, the California State Board of Education, last Thursday, they voted unanimously to adopt a modified and shortened version of the Smarter Balanced exams uh, that students in grades three through eight and then grade 11 are required to take in math and English language arts. And it's inter- it's important because everyone was speculating and they're still speculating, you know, will students still take tests if they're not perhaps in schools, right? And uh, so it's a one-year change. It's going to reduce t- uh, these two tests by about half the time, as I understand it. Um, there's no impact on the science tests because that's already shorter than English and math tests. And of course, the context is that last year, the federal government granted a waiver from all the uh, end-of-year tests given the pandemic, but it's unclear what will happen this year. I'll tell you that I've spoken to some former Obama administration officials who are not keen to see a waiver again. They want those tests there because of the perception that it will hide the inadequate education that many low-income and minority students have been receiving during these times. Uh, But 
you know, you have a lot more context on this than I do, given you're still in California, this will impact the students you serve. Uh, so I'd love your take and help me understand the underlying dynamics. Um, well, I don't think this is going to shock you, Michael, but I do not believe this is the best for kids. Um, just full stop. This is not good for kids. Um, and you know, uh, I, I think people are probably getting used to me saying that, and I've, I've got this reputation of not being a, a test person or an accountability person, which is not true. So let's just, um, I, I care very deeply about all of those things, but, but in all seriousness, I really don't think this is best for kids for a few key reasons. One, these state tests aren't about helping and supporting individual students. The results are, are basically impossible to read for families. They come way too late and aren't nearly precise enough for teachers to use. And they take precious resources of our time and our focus and money to administer. And those are not things we can spare this year, Michael. So I'm actually really curious, like these are digital tests, right? Like they've still, even if they're half the time, it's going to take till the next year to figure out results. That's I mean, insane. As, yes, it is insane. And it's, that's just how it goes. Um, you, you know, we're into the next school year before we actually have results. And what's really important is, again, these are not helpful results when you're actually a teacher in a classroom. Um, I, I think the other thing is they're, they're, and this is a big one for me, they are going to tell us that kids are really struggling to learn this year. Um, this notion that somehow that's going to be a hidden message seems crazy to me. No one's confused about this. There's nothing new that we're going to learn here. So we're going to spend an incredible amount of money to find out something we already know and get information that's not going to help us do anything about it. Um, and, and you know how we spend that money on making sure every single student in the state has uh, something like, well, let's spend that money differently. What about broadband access for every student in the state and a computer, Michael? Like I can just think of so many better ways for us to spend the time, focus, energy, resources. So I hear you. And I, I think the important point that you're raising is that we already sort of know what the outcomes are going to be. We don't need to take the test to show us that. And that to me, I think is the big point, because when I when I think about all of this, it, it's worth stepping back and saying, okay, what was the original purpose, right, for, for this testing regime in general? And a big part of it was that we didn't even have this data or this information, right? Like years and years ago, and like No Child Left Behind, and even before that, frankly, started to change that, uh, because we didn't have this insight into who was being left behind as the language went. Um, and the important part of the law, I think, was to break it out by subgroup so that we could really see these in sharp relief. Your point, I think, makes a lot of sense, which is, you know, we sort of already know how this game is being played out. So given we have limited resources, where do we spend them? Um, and 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 I think that's you know the big point. And obviously, in the in the article that I read on EdSource, Linda Darling Hammond, uh, who oversees uh, the California Board, she uh, you know emphasized that from a perspective of teaching and learning, schools and teachers should be completing a variety of assessments to give students and parents feedback beyond the smarter balance tests, because those scores, just as you said, they're not available to months later. Her quote was, everyone should have more da data about their child from other assessments. I completely agree with that. I think my read is sort of twofold as I, as I think about it. One, it's ironic that this is the way we're having a conversation about reducing the time taking tests, 
because that's been such an emphasis right now. And it continues to miss the bigger opportunity for me, which is that I, I think tests are incredibly important, but they should be both for learning, so driving what a student does next, and of learning, giving us a window transparency by individual, forget about subgroup, by individual of where are you in your learning journey so that we can be improving. And, and that seems to me the bigger opportunity for innovation in this void is just to try some things, right? Where we use assessments, we use performances that have external uh, validation of them, right? To say, hey, you know, where, where are you struggling or not and make adjustments at the teacher-student level that we can always aggregate up. I mean, there's plenty of data systems that can aggregate up now. We don't need to sort of have this top-down view of things, I guess, is, is, is my perspective. And it sounds like we're not taking advantage of that bigger opportunity. Completely, Michael. Both you and Linda are couldn't be more right. We should have um, data from other assessments, which is one more reason to not give these state tests. Um, you know, one of the things that struck me the most about the announcement when I actually read it was the state director of assessment called these shortened tests. Now, remember, we're going from like eight hours to four, that's the big revolutionary change, actually called it an innovation. And I honestly almost fell out of my chair, Michael. I mean, people love to call things innovation, innovative. It's a buzzword that makes people feel good. But let's be clear, <laughs> there's not one single thing about shortening the length of the test that is innovative. This, this is not innovation. And what you're describing as the need is a real need right now and for a long period of time now, the fact that we have this pretty oppressive, all-consuming testing regimen in this country means that no one is being innovative around how they can actually get other meaningful assessment data that's actually useful for the improvement of, of students' learning and helpful for teachers and helpful for families. And so th this system's actually robbing us of the space to be innovative. And you know, you're, you're one of the experts on when innovation actually happens. And it doesn't happen when there's a big, giant, oppressive system that everyone is beholden to and their you know jobs and careers depend on it and that's how they're judged and so you know uh, yeah, yeah i don't it, even know what it, more it, to say about that <laughs> well it's a good point and i guess the other thing that i'm thinking about as you said it you know i i get it why we want less time taken up by tests and so forth i think that's exactly right moving though from the eight hours to the four hours as you just described it's going to be an even blunter assessment when you think about it, right? Like right now, these assessments largely only capture grade level tasks. So we don't learn at the level of the individual, like where are your gaps? What's the one thing we could do for you that would like allow you to soar and unlock opportunity? That's not what these are used for. And we're still not going and it's going to be worse in that direction, right? As we even cut them down more. So in some ways, I think we're exacerbating certain problems and not addressing the root causes we've just talked about, about putting a better foundation in that could create a system. <laughs> a, it would be better for teaching and learning, full stop, but it also would be a lot more transparent, which seems like the opportunity we keep missing. And maybe that's the perfect segue into the Secretary of Education conversation, Diane, if you're okay with it, because you know a major role, obviously, of the federal government is transparency and data. So what's on your mind in the Secretary of Education? 
Well, it's on my mind and a lot of people's minds, and it's interesting uh, that these two are connected in more ways than one. You you reference Linda Darling Hammond, who's the head of the California State Board of Education, and one of the rumored possible um, next uh, secretaries of education. She has ruled that out. Um, yep, and so, but she is, of course, leading the transition team for Biden, as indeed, she did for President Obama. Indeed, yep. indeed. Um, and I, I, you know, personally, was a one of my favorite professors. And so um, I have great respect for her. Um, and um, it, it leads us into this conversation that um, it's hard to deny, Michael, that Betsy DeVos is, is perhaps, the, I think, the most well-known Secretary of Education in the history of the U.S. and yeah, and at the same right. time the least popular. Um, and so it's not surprising that the press is already speculating on her replacement. I read a, a Politico article this weekend that seemed to really miss the mark in terms of understanding what the Federal Department of Ed does and thus what the role entails and therefore the list of people that they were sort of trying to advance as possible top candidates. And so in keeping with our commitment to, to focus on what is is best for kids versus adult drama, I thought we could just start with a simple question. Like, what does the Federal Department of Education actually do, Michael? Yeah, I mean, it's a great opening question. I love how you just took it back to like first principles there, right? And so if I think it's important to remember that the, the given the way our country was set up and that education, as people are fond of saying, was not mentioned in the Constitution, uh, you know, education is really the purview of the states. And in fact, there was not a federal Department of Education. It wasn't a cabinet level position, in other words, until 1979. Prior to that, it was just an office. And, and even that office did not have a very long history uh, behind it, Diane. It's so shocking to me every time I'm reminded. 1979. This is a yeah, very, very ago. recent. Yes. And and it really just started out collecting statistics, Michael. Um, you know, by the that that was kind of what it was doing for the US is figuring out, all right, what's happening. And but by the late 1950s, early 60s, the federal government started allocating more money to education and specifically to the education of poor children. Um, but they people don't realize that they start in early childhood and go through post-secondary or college. Um, and as with most things like this, with money comes involvement. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, initially it was, it's interesting in higher education, it was all an access agenda. And in K-12 education, it was really a leveling of the field agenda, right? Knowing that states uh, spent different things on different students, different districts certainly have dramatically different levels of spending uh, based on property tax loads and so forth. And so it was really starting as ensuring equal access to education uh, and, and, and doing all these things to supplement and complement the states and local communities. But as you mentioned, you know, at some point people start saying, well, what are we getting for those dollars? And so the emphasis started to move uh, toward accountability, transparency, return on investment questions, really saying, you know, in, in some some administrations have been very prescriptive, right? This is how you are allowed to spend these dollars in very detailed ways that then uh, disproportionately impact other programs in the field. Uh, and then others have just said, you know, other administrations have been much more focused on, let's understand from a testing perspective, what outcomes we're actually getting, and then let local actors sort of decide what they want to do with that information, Diane. Right, Michael. And and while all those things are true that you just said, and part of the mission of the Department of Education, 
Um, in reality, the way that it actually works out and where the money is allocated, it, it, it turns out that the Federal Department of Education is probably more involved in post-secondary and early childhood than K-12. And um, even though the, the public tends to really focus on the, the K-12 portion of their engagement. Yeah, it's an important point because I think it's, you know, at its high watermark in K-12, uh, spending in the Obama administration got up to just about 10% of total K-12 funds spent in this country on public schools. You contrast that, that with That's worth education. repeating, 10%. Yeah, the federal 10%, government right? only contributing 10% of what we're spending on our schools. It's, it's and I suspect, and I, I, I don't have it in front of me, but I suspect it's probably 8% right now or something like that. Uh, so it's not a lot, right? Is the point No Child Left Behind took it up a step into the 7 to 10 range. Before that, it was even less, Diane. Uh, and so, you, you know, whereas higher education, right, through Title IV dollars, Pell Grants, federal student loans, things of that nature, there we're talking about billions and billions and billions of dollars. Like I want to say it's like 40% or so of the higher education spend uh, touches the federal government. And so it's a significantly different landscape uh, in terms of, uh, frankly, direct influence into those two sectors, just to name those two. Michael, I'm so glad we're we're starting by grounding in what the department actually does, the mission of the department and their activities before we start thinking about who should be doing the job of the next secretary. Um, and, and so I want to lead us in that direction. And I'd like to point out three areas where I would suggest the department has an outsized impact on what happens in K-12 schools. But these might be a little bit different than what people think about um, normally. Um, the first one, we'll just come back to it, is testing. <laughs> Everything always sort of comes back to testing. But, you know, states have grown highly dependent on these federal dollars. And so they need them, which means they've had to accept the federal accountability system, which is rooted in this annual testing system we were just talking about. And, and like it or not, these tests are driving a, a majority of what's happening or not happening in our K-12 schools. And as we've previously talked about, um, really, in many ways, narrowing the focus of the schools and um, blocking some real innovation and change. So so they the department definitely has an influence there. And, and you know, that, that matters. Um, the second thing is a little bit um, more of a, a leap, but... Um, Money for college. So as you've just said, the DOE plays a huge role in granting and lending money for college. And regardless of where you sit on this sort of hot debate topic, the reality is that these programs have driven the economics and the price tags for college, which in turn um, is having a pretty dramatic impact on what high schools are doing in the in the country. And I can just tell you as a high school educator, the impact of college on what we do, it's like that effect of what college does drives what high school does, what high school does drives what middle school does, what middle school does drives elementary. And so, you know, we've talked about that in detail before, but it might be worth returning to at some point because it's so significant. And then finally, and this is the one that I'm not sure that people really have a real grasp on, is the federal government drives special education in our K-12 education system. And so in short, uh, the federal law that governs the rights and access to education for students 
students with disabilities has a really profound impact on the behaviors and the budgets of every K-12 school in America. And these mandates have never been fully funded by the federal government, which is one of the big controversies around them. Um, and, uh, you know, as I can tell you, as a, as a K-12 educator, really significantly impact the decisions we make, the shape of our program, how we serve our kids. And so I will just say those three big areas of focus suggest to me that the notion that picking a teacher to be the secretary of ed, which is what a lot of people are talking about, um, would not actually set the teacher up or the country up for success. Like this job isn't about teaching, sadly. It's about implementing policy in a way that enables teachers to be successful, I would argue, if done well. But I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I, there, there's, I think it's a good point to start. And, and I think the irony is that the politics of this has gotten so much on we need to have a teacher as the head of the Secretary of Education. But but your point is is right, I think, in my mind, which is what we really need is someone that is able to see the overall system, right? And the impact of policy or any one action and the ripple effects of how that uh, helps or, or hurts, in many cases, what happens on the ground. And, and it's not clear that someone who's been in the system will necessarily be able to see that ball rolling down. And, and frankly, the irony of a lot of past picks, I would argue, of secretaries of education is that they tend to come in with a particular area of expertise. They're a K-12 person, they're a higher ed person, almost always K-12, by the way. But uh, but then they deal, when, when you look at the time that they spend, they actually spend most of their time on something else that's outside their area of expertise. So let's take Betsy DeVos, for example, right? She knew more about K-12, I would, I would argue, than higher ed. Disproportionately, though, there's no question her department has done way more in higher ed than K-12. It's not even close, right? And so um, ideally, from my perspective, you would have someone that's able to see that globally in some way and stretch across. And it's why... Uh, you know, the, the, both of the heads of the major teachers unions have been floated as potential candidates. A, if Republicans control the Senate, I think it's a non-starter unless Biden wants to go down the Trump road of appointing acting sec secretaries that never get confirmed. But I, I just I don't see that given his message uh, of unity. Uh, I do think that he's more sympathetic to teachers unions than perhaps President Obama was. So, you know, there is more synergy there, I suppose. But I'm really intrigued by like some of the names like a Freeman Herbowski, the president of U University of Maryland, Baltimore County that have been floated because someone like that has been directly impacted from the system from the higher ed level, but sees the full funnel of, of K-12. And, and he's been really noted in particular for supporting uh, African-American students, taking them from the K-12 system and supporting them all the way through graduation and into amazing careers through a bunch of the moves he's done. So someone like that, that I think is able to see the full system is super intriguing to me, at least, Diane. I, I completely agree with you, Michael. Um, and I think what I would add to this is one of the reasons Betsy DeVos is so well known and so disliked is the the other part of the secretary job is that they have a podium in the US. You know, this person is the voice of education, even though the money is minimal, even though the power is really not there. This person has the megaphone when it comes to education. And so I think what I just want to add is um, I'm looking for someone who is going to um, carry that initial message we heard from the president-elect and the vice president-elect of, 
unity and collaboration and a collective effort and that we're all in this together um, because you know sadly in education um well i think everyone in it really does want what's best for kids and care cares about kids there's terrible fighting and terrible um you know war making among different factions and it's just really unhealthy and i'm hopeful that this next secretary can be someone who really does unite people and bring them together and uses their um megaphone in order to to advance that that approach uh, here's I, here, here's to that right i mean i think if every cabinet pick and sort of choice right now can go toward lowering the temperature we would all be better off given all the stresses right now. Right, Diane? I completely agree with you, Michael. And I'm sure um, we're going to be watching. I know you and I will be watching this closely over the coming weeks and we'll be so curious to see who our next secretary is. Um, but until then, um, I'm so curious. What have you been managing to read or look at or think about? What, what's striking you in these last couple of crazy weeks? Yeah, I'm pouring through a bunch of books as usual. I'm, I, I, I finally picked up the uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist book. And so I'm, I'm, I'm uh, about 30 or 40 pages into that so far. I think my take might be different from other people's, but that's a different conversation. But uh, the, the one that I've actually enjoyed the most is a, just a podcast. Uh, it's a, the Graffito podcast. I'm sure I'm saying that incorrectly, G-R-A-F-F-I-T-O. But um, it's about restaurants and sort of how they've been impacted by the pandemic and all the supply chains and all the frontline workers and distribution, right? And and how they get impacted during this. And uh, a friend of mine who was on the podcast um, uh, sort of put me onto it because I, I, we were hanging out and, and I was like, oh, I want to hear your voice more. No, um, but <laughs> either way, it was fascinating because it's a whole side of this, right? That has been hugely disrupted in our lives uh, thanks to this. And it, it, it's been eye-opening for me. What about you? Fascinating. Um, well, I just finished reading Cleopatra, uh, which is the award-winning work of nonfiction that honestly reads like fiction by Stacey Schiff. And uh, it's been on my shelf for years, Michael. And for some reason, it finally felt like the right time to read it. And on Saturday, I realized why it was the right time to, to read it. I'll tell you the... Um, as I watched Vice President-elect Kamala Harris speak of her journey and how it's a continuation of the journey of so many women um, who came before her. And as she stood in front of our nation in uh, her highly symbolic white suit, um, I was, I was, I'm, it's happening to me again right now, Michael, I was overcome with um, unexpected emotion. Uh, I think for two reasons. First, it means something to me that a woman has been elected. To the second highest office and um it's not just little girls that it matters to it matters to, to some some of us as well it's important to say that right yeah and then second um that kamala had to and likely will continue ha having to endure the same tired criticisms and attacks that Cleopatra endured over 2,000 years ago. Um, I've been reflecting all weekend on, you know, uh, rather than just feeling angry about that, uh, what will I do as a woman to stand against the narrative that Kamala is going to be our vice president for any reason other than her hard work, her intelligence, her values, and her commitment to our, our nation? And I'm really just holding myself accountable to not 
let any of that seep in and do what I can um, to make sure that we honor and respect her. Well, I'll say as, so, I mean, you're right. It obviously has had an impact on, on women, not just daughters, but as the father of daughters, that's where I'm seeing it right now. So I, I, that resonates what you just said, Diane. And with that, Michael, um, it was good to chat with you as always. I will look forward to seeing you again on our next episode of Class Disrupted. 